I'm live. So see, y'all don't know what we're talking about. Ha ha. That's right. All right, so turn in your Bibles to the book of Nahum. Nahum. I will say that in 20 some odd years of ministry, I have never preached from the book of Nahum. I did not, in a reading through the Bible plan through my whole life, um, Nahum is always, you know, by itself, you, because it's three short little chapters, you, you read the book of Nahum, I never put it in context, I have had a lot of fun this week preparing for this lesson, because Nahum is actually the continuation of the story that we have in Jonah. In fact, if I was naming Nahum, I would have named it Jonah 2, the Nineveh, or something like that. So here's, what, here's the deal. So you've got your timeline up at the top on the notes. And if you are watching online, you can download the notes. Those are available um, at, uh, if you go to northglencoe.org, then you go to media, and then go to Wednesday night, and then you can download the notes. So on the notes, it shows that in 668, the reign of Manasseh begins. Now remember, as you go to Higher numbers are getting further away, so the timelines are reversed because it's B.C. So Jonah preaches in 753 B.C., so about 90 years before that. In 722 B.C. is when the northern kingdom falls. So here's what happens. Israel, okay, let's just back all the way up. Solomon is king of the nation of Israel, all 12 tribes. When he dies, that kingdom is split in two between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And you have ten of the tribes that become the northern kingdom. And then two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, become the southern kingdom. And Jerusalem is in Judea. So you've got Judah, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin in the southern kingdom... And then you have the northern kingdom. Now, if you read in First and Second Same or First Second Kings um, and First Second Chronicles, you'll read that in the southern kingdom, it was the way the kind of cycle went was you would have a bad king, a bad king, and then a good king, and there would be revival, and he would set things straight. He would tear down the altars, and he would say, "We're all going to do this right." And then his, you would read, and his son did not follow in his ways, but he followed after the sin of Jeroboam. And so, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king. And then you would have this good king who would come in, and remember the story of Josiah? They're cleaning out the temple, and uh, it's like they're doing a spring cleaning, and somebody finds the law. They, they, they just completely forgotten God's word. Somebody finds, you know, they're, they're cleaning off the Lord's supper table where all the stuff had been stacked up, and they're, what is this? And, and somebody reads the law to Josiah, and he's like, what have we been doing? And Josiah is a, it becomes king as a little boy. He's a child king. He's grown up a little bit more now, but he, he repents. He calls the nation repents. You've got a good king. If you look at that northern kingdom, that's not the cycle you have. You have a bad king, a bad king, a worse king, a really bad king, a really, really bad king, to the point that in Israel it had gotten to the point to where it was common for people to sacrifice their children to false gods. They would, would mix their 
false god worship with their worship of Yahweh. They would go to the Baals and the Ashtaroths, and the Ashtaroths were uh, sexual rites, R-I-T-E-S, rites kind of gods. So they would go and participate with the prostitution and the things that went on in those worships, and then they would turn around and, and act like they were worshiping God. So that the prophets often are saying, don't play this game with me. Don't come to a meeting and act like you love me and worship me and then go worship false gods. And so in Israel, the nation of Israel, which is the northern kingdom, it's just degrading and degrading and degrading to the point that in one of the last kings was said of them that the wickedness of Israel was greater than the wickedness of the people that Israel had replaced. So you have Jonah that goes, it's called to go to Nineveh. At the time that Jonah goes to Nineveh, Nineveh was not a threat to Israel. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Assyria was a large kingdom, but not a huge kingdom. But he goes and preaches. We know the story. They repent. We saw why God did it that way, so that when Jesus preached to the Jewish nation, he could say, Okay, they had the worst possible preacher in Nineveh, and they repented. And here God is standing before you in the form of a man, and you're not repenting. Nineveh will rise up on that day and condemn you. So, they repent. They've repented, but the nation of Israel is still wicked. The next generation they're not following after God anymore in Assyria, and Israel is wicked. So we had the prophet that we saw last week, Micah. And Micah goes to the nation of Israel and says, God is going to destroy you. Remember we said that Micah sets out a divorce decree. God sets out a lawsuit against the nation of Israel and says, I'm done. Your wickedness has reached me. I'm done. And God is going to use that northern nation, Assyria, to come in and destroy you. That happens in 722. So in 753, Jonah preaches in Nineveh. In 722, the northern kingdom falls. So in 2 Kings 14.25, we read, that God restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabia, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by the word of Jonah the prophet. So Jonah was also preaching in Israel. And then in 2 Kings 17 we read, In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria, they captured Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and the cities of the Medes. And so Assyria took the northern kingdom away, and then Assyria continues growing. They take Thebes, which is the the northern part of the Egyptian nation. They take Egypt. They, They are now controlling an empire as large as the Roman Empire. This huge swath of land that's on the back of your notes 
is all, all the grade in area there, all the way over to Egypt, all the way over to modern-day Turkey, Jerusalem, all of that is a part of the Assyrian Empire. Now, we know uh, what happened in Israel at that time. And so if you want to turn me over to 2 Kings, it's, it's a great story. So Assyria takes the northern kingdom... Um, Assyria takes the northern kingdom and then um, they lay siege to Jerusalem. As they lay, lay siege to, uh, to Jerusalem, Sennacherib, who is the king of Assyria at this time, sends uh, his um, spokesman, Rabshakeh, to tell the people of Israel that, hey, y'all need to surrender. The people of Jerusalem. I'm sorry, I'm mixing, mixing stuff because we think of all of it as Israel. So the northern kingdom has already fallen. Hezekiah, the king of, Israel, uh, of Jerusalem, knows that, that Assyria has done that, and they are hundreds of thousands of troops around Jerusalem. Hezekiah then gets a letter from Rabshakeh, who is the spokesman for Sennacherib, because, let me just read what he says. So, Rabshakeh, and I'm reading in 2 Kings 19, starting with verse 8. Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against the Lebanon. And so, uh, he get, get down to verse 10. Thus shall you say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Had the gods of the nations delivered them that the nations that my father destroyed, Gazan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where's the king of Hamath, the king of Aphod, the king of the city of Sepharvim, the king of Hena, or the king of Evah? And so this is what he's saying. So Sennacherib, through his spokesman, says to Hezekiah, do you really think that your God is going to deliver you? Where's the gods of all the other people that I've defeated? I've defeated all these other lands that he lists out. Where are their gods? You better surrender, or I'm going to march into you just like I did Samaria. Your God is not more powerful than all these other people's gods. Now, this is the same people, and notice that he uses the proper name for the Lord. The Lord's not going to del deliver you. Your God is not going to deliver you. These are the same people that after Jonah preached there said, Turn, for there is no God greater than Yahweh. Now there's... Rabshakeh, the spokesman of... Sennacherib said, your God is not more powerful than these other gods. So, we know what happened. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messenger, read it, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone 
of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations in their land and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not God, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. So Hezekiah did exactly what he should do. He took this letter from Sennacherib and laid it out before the Lord. He didn't pray, Lord, increase my kingdom so everybody will think that I'm awesome. Lord, give me more stuff. God, help us to win this so that everybody will see what a great land this is. No, he prayed, God, so that all the world will know that you are God. And there is none like you in all the earth. Those of you who know the character of God, know as you're reading this prayer what's going to happen. Isaiah, who had left Hezekiah, he sent to Hezekiah and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. I think it's funny that Isaiah felt like he had to say what prayer he was talking about. But, uh, so God sends an angel, and in the night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead bodies. And then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. And as he worshipped in the house of Nishroth, his god, Adramelech, and Sherezim, his son, struck him down with a sword and escaped into the land of Herat. So, here, Sennacherib, who claimed that there is, your god's not going to protect you. He woke up one morning and all the troops were dead. Can you imagine how Jerusalem must have felt? They are being sieged. Nothing comes in, nothing goes out. If they look over the wall, as far as the eye can see, 185,000 people is a lot of people. If you've ever been in Tuscaloosa or Auburn on a game day, you've seen what 100,000 people feels like. I honestly don't tell anybody, I don't like it. I don't like feeling like I'm in an ant bed and stirred up. <laughs> But 185,000 people all around the wall, as far as you can see, there's truth. We don't have any hope. And they wake up that morning, and they look out, and all those troops dead. They didn't do anything. The Lord sent an angel who did it. They didn't have to lift a hand. They didn't have to mount an army. That In this particular case, God chose to just show the world, I'm God. So... God sent the nation of Israel into captivity. Jerusalem stands. Assyria is still in ascendancy. As we said, uh, in um, 664, Thebes falls to the Assyrians. In 640, uh, Josiah uh, becomes king. But back in 660, when Nineveh was at its highest point, it was the strongest it would ever be. God sent the prophet Nathan. So we can turn back to Nathan to see what he had to say. Now, 
let me be honest with you. Let me just be real here. As I have read in the Old Testament, I, I completely and totally understand, and my theology is completely in line with the idea of the fact that God uses outside sources to correct his people. Okay, so Israel, claiming to be his people, have become just as wicked, if not more wicked, than the nations surrounding them. That God uses Assyria to come in and destroy them. But in the back of my mind, there's always been a little bell that went off and said, well, what about Assyria? I mean, we saw last week where Micah told them, okay, you've overcomplicated this, and you think that it, you've got to do all this crazy stuff. Here's what your responsibility is. Love justice, treat your neighbor as you would be treated, and walk humbly before your God. Just do that! So, as I read of Assyria coming in, well, why is God not holding them? I understand that it's a lower standard, because to whom much is given, much is required. But if God says that he's destroying Israel because of the way that they've treated the widows and orphans, because of the way that they've stomped on their neighbor, because of the sin that they've done, isn't Assyria doing the same thing? That question is answered in Nathan. Now Nathan starts off and introduces himself, the oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkosh. Now Elkosh is the city that he's from. He starts out and in the first uh, eight verses is a beautiful, beautiful song. He sings that the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath, keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And so after this song from 1-9 all the way to the end of the book, it is a long pronunciation of the coming judgment of Nineveh for the same sin that Israel committed. God is not a respecter of persons. God has set a standard and he expects humanity to follow that standard. He expects us to follow that moral code. Remember when Israel came into that while Israel was in captivity rather, God said, I'm not sending them home just yet because the wickedness of the Canaanites hasn't reached its fruition. He was slow to wrath. And so here, at the time when the Assyrians had to think that Nahum had lost his mind, they are the strongest they would ever be. They had just conquered Thebes. We know that because in 3.8, he said, uh, yes, uh, he's talks about um, are you better than thieves thieves that sat by the Nile with water around her, her ramp for the sea and water her wall Cush was her strength, Egypt too and that without limit but, and the foot and the Libyans were her helpers yet she became an exile so he's saying to them okay, you think that you were able to conquer the Thebians even though they had Egypt, they had Cush, they're surrounded by allies, 
that you destroyed them, even though they had all that stuff, and you think it's because you, you're that awesome? No. God is working a plan, and because you opened your mouth and defiled the God of Israel when they said, Yahweh's no better than you, because of the way that you treated the nation, all your fortresses are like fig trees. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the Hebrew. So, he gives the image, and I, I, I've done this before. Um, when I was probably eight or nine, my dad uh, gave me a green facility. And uh, if you've ever eaten a green persimmon, um, they will make you draw up. They are horrible. And he laughed and laughed at me. And so I learned at an early age, you only eat persimmons that have fallen to the ground. And I love these persimmons. In fact, in Turkey, they have these persimmons that are as big as apples. And they are so good. So what I would do is we had a little, it was a little tree out beside the barn that was a persimmon tree. And I would go to that tree I would shake it, and then the persimmons that fell on the ground, because once they lay on the ground for over a day, they get squishy, and you can't eat them. But I'd shake it, and then I'd go pick up the persimmons, and I'd sit there and eat them until I made myself sick. And so I, I know what he's, that the image of shaking the tree. In fact, if you've ever watched the way commercial uh, almond pickers work, they actually had these big tractor things that wrap around the tree and vibrate, and they lay tarps out, and all the almonds fall into onto those tarps, and, and all the almonds fall. That's the image that he gives. He, he, they even say, you think you're super strong, but just like somebody goes and shakes a fig tree to pull the, the, the weakest, most ripe fig just fall off into the mouth of the eater, God's going to take you and shake you, and your fortresses are going to fall. You're not strong. You will fall. That God's going to hold you accountable for your action. The whole of the, cha the chapters 1, 2, and 3 are saying that God is against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your, devour your young lion. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messenger shall no longer be heard. Now, this is different than we saw last week in the proclamation against Israel. In the proclamation against Israel, remember, I started off by saying, in prophetic utterances, you always have a wheel and a woe, a blessing and a curse. To the nation of Israel, Micah said, You are going to fall because of your wickedness. That part of the message is exactly the same. But to Israel, he says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. And yet Nahum, in talking to the Assyrians, says, You're done. 
38 years later, to the shock of the world, Nineveh was utterly destroyed. The prophecy of Nahum was proven true. God does what he said he would do. And this brings to light an apologetic that I use. Sometimes, as you read uh, in the Bible, it's easy to go, am, am, I, am I really buying all this? I'm just being, I'm being real with you. It's normal for us sometimes to have doubts. And one of the things that the Lord has shown me that makes me believe this word, have you ever met an Ninevite? You ever met an Assyrian? There are a few left. There's a couple hundred um, Nineveh was destroyed again not too many years ago. ISIS was able to take over the ancient city of Nineveh and all the archaeological finds that were there. The ISIS destroyed them. Uh, they, they videoed it and uploaded it to YouTube with them taking a sledgehammer to the Nineveh Museum. There was nobody from Assyria there to protect those precious items. You meet a Jew today. Go to lunch with one if you want to. I, I know a couple of guys who are Jewish who would be glad to go to lunch with you to live right here at God said, Micah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, I'm going to protect the remnant of my people. The people who live in Egypt are not the same genetic people who lived in Egypt when the pyramids were built. Those people have been interdispersed with the nations. You and I are all mutts. If you were to go to, to some kind of genetic test thing and get your blood or spit or whatever it is that they, they test to test your DNA, it's going to come back and say that you're, you know, you're, you're 65% uh, Western European and that you're you know, 3% Sub-Saharan Africa and you're 4% Native American and we're all months. I mean, I, I know just looking at my family's stories that this family member came from England, this family member came from Ireland, this person over here came from Germany and this right? And all of those people and Paulus will tell us that most of the people who live in Europe that look like us uh, actually came out of part of India and then over Millennia of time, they came here and they went there, they did this stuff. So, 6,000 years of recorded history from Abraham, God said, I'm going to do something. We see in the book of Revelation when completing that story. And we have living proof that he's keeping his word. Micah promised Israel there's going to be a remnant that's kept. Nahum did not make that promise to the Assyrians. Your nation will be utterly destroyed. The Medes and Persians came in, took, took over, Babylonians, next wave, then the Macedonians, and God kept what he said. And all of that, and all of this story, 
What we see is God working out His promise. God doing. I want you to understand the miracle of the fact that God sat down with a guy named Abram and said, from you is coming someone who will, who will bless all the world. When he said that, that was crazy talk. Here, this one dude, that his, he's going to have families that are going to be so many that you can't count them, more than the stars in the sky, more than the sand in the heaven. And this guy at 80 hadn't even had any kids yet. And yet God promised that, and then he has a son who has a son, and that son has 12 kids, so at least somebody's getting started on the program. But even with that, after they, they, they go to Egypt, they grow and become a nation, but they're under slavery. How's the world going to be blessed by that? And then after, even if you look at the story of David and Solomon, and, and you see in the book of Judges how they, they grew and they prospered after they sinned, they shrunk down again to nothingness almost. How's the world going to do that? And we see as all of these big things in the world are happening, Assyria, the reason the Persians are coming down, the Babylonians are doing this thing, the Macedonians are doing this thing, and then after the Macedonians, you've got the Romans who come in. All of these big, huge things that are happening in the world are almost the background for what God is doing to bring a little baby in a backwater of a no-name community that's going to bless the whole world. And the fact that we're sitting here today in a land that hadn't even been thought of at that point in the known Western world, a people from other places sitting here today worshiping and praising a son of Abraham is to me, complete and total proof that the true claims of this book are real. That the stuff that we read in here is real. Because in 1 AD, the most important person alive wasn't Julius Caesar. It was a, a baby who's having to flee to Egypt. Because I don't break Julius Caesar. And so we see in these minor prophets that God is at work doing what he is doing, which tells me a few things. I take away from this a couple of things. One, the way that Nahum speaks. And I would recommend reading the book of Nahum. Scares me to death for the United States of America. And the babies that we murder on a regular basis way, the very fact I, I would recommend anyone to go and Google and read the proclamation of victory that joint session of Congress unanimously passed after VJ Day. It is a beautiful, humble recognizing that it was the work of God in our nation that allowed us to be victorious. And compare that some idiot who stood up in Congress and prayed to whatever God you want to. And 
ended it by saying amen and amen, showing he doesn't speak English any more than he understands God. And think, God's going to let that continue? God's going to turn a blind eye to us as we do exactly what the nation of Israel did. Throughout this nation, people intermingle their sin with their worship on a regular basis. We don't raise idols up and fall down and worship them. We carry our idols around in our pocket. So one of the things that I take from Nathan is, is that either this country is going to repent and turn back to God, or we're done. Because God is not going to continue turning his back on our sin and our wickedness. And I've heard some say, well, there are other countries that are more wicked. Well, see here. God dealt with the wickedness of Assyria, but he also used them to deal with the wickedness of Israel. So God is not slow to anger. God is not slow uh, to understand how to do that and how to be just in his handling of the nation. The other thing that I see is that even in the midst of all of that, God has a plan and he's working his plan. He knows what he's doing. Nations rise and fall. Countries move. Think everybody thinks they're in control. In reality, God is sovereign. You, beloved, are his. So if you stay focused on him, you cry out to him, what can we see with Hezekiah? The way he said you. Rise up so that all the world will know that you are God and there is none like you. If you live your life in light of that, nothing can touch you. I'm not saying that everything's going to be the way you like it. I'm not going to say that you get a new truck and a phone. But what I'm saying is, is that everything that comes through you will first come past the hands of your God. Father God, Lord, I pray. We live our life recognizing that you alone are God, and there is none like you. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are the God who passed over the homes with the blood on the lentils. You are the God who split the Red Sea and took your children out of Egypt. You are the God who led your people to victory throughout Canaan. You are the God who disciplined your own children when they ran. You are the God who loved the world so much that you gave your only son. You are the God took on our punishment and hung on a cross that we deserve. And you are the God who left the grave empty so that death itself would be killed and the destroyers would be destroyed. And so God, we look to you. You're the only God with the power and authority to protect us in these perilous times. 
You are the only God who is sovereign. And so, God, we run to you. We cling to you. We look to your word. And we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.